is Wednesday, March 23rd, and this is VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedofo in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour, the U.S. begins probe into alleged war crimes committed by Russian forces in Ukraine. President Joe Biden heads to Europe Wednesday in hopes that face-to-face talks with NATO, European, and G7 leaders will achieve what virtual diplomacy has so far failed to do. Debate rages over whether Russian President Vladimir Putin bears legal liability for invading Ukraine. The United States has concluded the genocide was committed seven times. Today marks the 8th, as I have determined that members of the Burmese military committed genocide and crimes against humanity. And scientists uncovered the secret of one of astronomy's newest mystery objects, faint rings of radio waves. We'll have these stories and more next on International Edition. Stay tuned. Ukrainian forces are resisting continuing Russian efforts to occupy Mariupol, and claim to have retaken a strategic suburb of Kiev. Western officials fear their dogged defense may force Russia's President Vladimir Putin to escalate the war and intensify shelling of military and civilian targets. This, as the Pentagon has started gathering evidence linking Russian troops to war crimes in their invasion of Ukraine. Washington on Monday accused the Kremlin of carrying out indiscriminate attacks as part of an intentional strategy in the conflict. Pentagon spokesman John Kirby. We certainly see clear evidence that Russian forces are committing war crimes, and we are helping with the collecting of evidence of that. But there's investigative processes that are going to go on, and we're going to let that happen. We're going to contribute to that investigative process. As for what would come out of that, uh, that's not a decision that the Pentagon leadership would make. I'm not going to talk about specific systems that are in Ukraine, and I think you guys can understand why we wouldn't do that. Operational security matters to the Ukrainians right now. They're fighting for their country, and Pentagon is not going to be detailing publicly the tools with which they are doing that. I'm not going to talk about specific uh, systems one way or the other. That's Pentagon spokesman John Kirby. The UN's Human Rights and Refugee Commission's report the deaths of 925 people and the displacement of 10 million people in Ukraine. The figures are fueling debate whether or not Russian President Vladimir Putin is answerable to the International Criminal Court for War Crimes. Former ICC prosecutor and U.S. ambassador at large for global criminal justice, Stephen Rapp, says proving that Putin committed war crimes could be challenging. In an interview with VOA's Homan Bakhtia of VOA's Persian Service, Rapp, who now heads the Holocaust Memorial Museum, says, however, the bombing of Mariupol, where many civilians were killed, presents a strong case. All appearances of the Russian bombardment, particularly in Mariupol, is that it's a, to attack the civilian infrastructure, including hospitals and schools and places of refuge for children, uh, in order to uh, to drive off the civilian population, in order to terrorize that population. That is illegal under the laws of war. It's illegal to intentionally attack civilians. It's illegal to use uh, indiscriminate uh, bombardment that make no distinction whether it's a civilian or military target, or to use disproportionate force against uh, military targets. And uh, everything about this particular operation, you know, indicates that it's a total violation of the Geneva Conventions, uh, which Russia has ratified and, and, and says it supports. Uh, of course, proving it in court is challenging uh, because the Russians can say, oh, well, they were uh, military targets all through there. Uh, but uh, that that is uh, illogical. And, and, and when the evidence is shown uh, uh, in terms of what they were shooting at, uh, and what was there, uh, I think that the pattern of what they've done in Mariupol is totally inconsistent uh, with, uh, with a military attack operation. So I think that in particular is a war crime. 
Um, when we get to other situations, just because civilians are killed, or horrific as it is, that doesn't in and of itself prove a war crime. It has to, you have to be able to show either intention or indiscriminate attacks or disproportionate attacks. And those are always scales of gray in a way, and proving uh, in a a criminal court requires proof beyond a reasonable doubt. So if you're going to draw inferences, there can be no inference reasonably that can be drawn that points to innocence. But when you see something like Mariupol, uh, if all of that were now presented to a court, uh, I'm quite confident that we'd get war crimes convictions. If the ICC proceeds with uh, indicting the Russian military, only Putin will be held accountable for the entire the structure of the uh, Russian army. Obviously, the question of who is responsible is something that requires additional investigation in terms of the chain of command. And quite often in international courts, there's a question about who really is in control. And sometimes the worst crimes are committed by proxy forces or forces in another country. And who's pulling the strings is the issue. But here we don't have that ambiguity. These uh, forces are all under the direct command of the president of, of Russia and his minister of defense and chief of the general staff. And uh, obviously putting it all together in terms of understanding that chain of command and which operational commands are responsible and which local commanders are responsible is a key part of it. But I think in this situation, once there's proof of war crimes on the massive scale that we've seen that involve the traditional Russian military committing the crimes, then I think it's inevitable that it leads to an arrest warrant against Vladimir Putin. That's former ICC prosecutor and U.S. ambassador at large for global criminal justice, Stephen Rapp, speaking with my colleague, Human Bakite of VOA's Persian Service. The World Health Organization reports hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian refugees are arriving in Poland in utter distress and afflicted with a staggering number of health and mental disorders. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. Poland is host to about 61% of the more than 3.5 million refugees who have fled war-torn Ukraine into neighboring countries. The World Health Organization reports access to health care is severely restricted in Ukraine and an overwhelming number of refugees need immediate medical attention. WHO representative in Poland, Paloma Kuchi, says refugees arrive exhausted and in despair after a long, difficult, and dangerous journey to to the Polish border. Speaking on a video link from Warsaw, Kuchi describes children who have been traveling for several days without proper food or water as being tired and worried. She says the elderly arrive with other health problems. There is a tremendous number of senior refugees that have come without the, have been without the medication for days. They come with this compensated diabetes, with blood pressure, with other health problems. And of course, we have women with uh, pregnant women that have been without prenatal care. Kuchi adds people who are medically fragile must be urgently evacuated to a facility where they can continue the treatment that was interrupted during their flight. They include children and adults with cancer, those needing dialysis, and mental health patients. The World Health Organization has verified 62 attacks on health care facilities in Ukraine since Russia invaded that country on February 24th. The 10 latest reported attacks 
attacks on health care facilities just occurred on Tuesday, March 22nd. WHO says a total of 15 people have been killed and 37 injured. WHO strongly condemns attacks on health care. It says they violate international law and endanger lives. Kuchi says WHO is preparing for a massive number of people who may arrive in Poland all at once in a very short time if the situation deteriorates quickly. She adds WHO also is preparing for long-term needs. So this translates into increased demands on, on needs for essential healthcare services, for medication, for murders, for children, for HIV, for tuberculosis, as well as for patients suffering for uh, non-communicable diseases, mental health and, and support. Kuchi says WHO's focus is on saving lives and ensuring those affected by armed conflict have access to basic health services and treatments for COVID-19, polio, and other health threats. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. Rohingya refugees in Bangladesh have welcomed the announcement by the United States that it considers the violent repression of their lively Muslim ethnic group in Myanmar a genocide. The declaration Monday by U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken that state-sponsored violence against the largely Muslim Rohingya population in Myanmar amounts to genocide is intended to both generate international pressure and lay the groundwork for potential legal action. Christina Fink is a professor of practice of international affairs at George Washington University. She says Washington's action is an important step towards holding the Myanmar military junta accountable for crimes against their people. This is a long time coming. There has already been extensive documentation of the abuses that have been committed by the Myanmar military against the Rohingya population in Myanmar. In particular, the United Nations put together a very detailed fact-finding report in the late 2010s that documented the abuses that were committed, particularly in 2017, when they committed a huge military operation that was targeting civilians and forcing civilians to leave their villages. They used rape, burning down people's houses killing people on the spot. The abuses were just horrific, and the documentation was there, but the United States under the Trump administration didn't make a ruling, and so it's been a welcome decision. Could the United States have done this a little bit earlier, and what about the timing? Why now? Well, of course, it would have been helpful if the determination had been made in 2018, which was when the evidence was collected both by the UN body, the US government, and many other international human rights groups and groups within the country. But I think that under the last administration, there was less interest in addressing human rights abroad. And this has been something that's been more of a focus under the Biden administration. So it's been a long time coming, but it's at least a good thing that it has now happened. And what does this all mean, and how does this affect the government, the military junta in Myanmar? It's important to note that Myanmar is under military rule. The military took power a year ago and has been brutally oppressing the entire population, not just Rohingya people who are still in the country, but also anybody who has been calling for a restoration of democracy. So the regime itself is unlikely to do anything to address the accountability issues that pertain to this case. But I think what's important about it is it does really highlight that 
this is something that the United States cares about and therefore other governments should care about. And another point I'd like to make is how important this is for the Rohingya people because people in Myanmar were uh, subject to a lot of disinformation about what happened during that period of military attacks and didn't understand that this really was a case of crimes against humanity and genocide. And so having this determination from the United States really makes people think twice about what happened and makes the Rohingya people feel that they've been heard and that their dignity has been restored. Will this designation by the U.S. help the Myanmar people or even international agencies find another way to hold the military Myanmar accountable? Well, I think that holding the military accountable is going to be a long-term process. So we may not see immediate results, but this is one important piece leading toward some kind of accountability in the future. That's Christina Fink, a professor of practice of international affairs at George Washington University, speaking with me from Washington, D.C. While much of the world is focused on Russia's invasion of Ukraine, analysts warn that nations should not ignore Islamic militants who are increasing attacks in Africa's Sahel region and spreading to West Africa's coastal states. French security forces are helping by training the region's militaries for an effective response, as Harry Wilkins reports from Abidjan, Ivory Coast. On the Abri Lagoon that stretches through the centre of Ivory Coast's main city, Abidjan, Ivorian and French forces are preparing to face a growing threat. Since 2020, terror groups linked to Islamic State and Al-Qaeda have carried out attacks against Ivorian forces. One Ivorian commando, who declined to give his surname, says the threat is real and they're preparing to face it in every way possible. Now because we are really, really uh, focused on terrorism, because in the north part of our country, we are best terrorism. So talking about sea, air and land, that's why we are here. Security analysts say terrorism is spreading to the north of coastal states like Ivory Coast, Ghana, Benin and Togo. The next phase in the Western Sahel's decade-long conflict. Large parts of Burkina Faso, Mali and Niger are experiencing daily attacks, targeting military and civilians alike. Since 2020 began, there have been 17 incidents in the north of Ivory Coast linked to Al-Qaeda affiliate groups, according to the US-based Armed Conflict Location and Event Data Project, including gun battles and roadside bombs. Ivory Coast has sent large numbers of troops to the north in response to these attacks. Asked by VOA if terror groups have co-opted local populations in Ivory Coast, the commander of French forces in the country, Colonel Arnaud Metle, expressed doubt. Uh, for the moment, we think that uh, the local population does not cooperate with the jihadist groups because there is a, a strong answer from the Ivorian armed forces. But it's really, uh, it's, a, it's a real concern. Asked if the terrorist threat spreading from Burkina Faso is preventable, the colonel said... We think it's preventable. We cannot prevent the threat going to the south, but we can succeed in uh, fighting this threat. The United States last month carried out Operation Flintlock, an exercise to promote cooperation among regional, NATO and US forces in Ivory Coast for the first time. Henry Wilkins for VOA News. Abidjan, Ivory Coast.
China news, Chinese authorities said on Tuesday that they expect the investigation of the China Eastern Airline crash to face serious difficulties due to the severe damage to the aircraft, which they said had no known issue prior to takeoff. Flight MU5735 was headed on Monday for the port city of Guangzhou from Kuming, capital of the southwestern province of Yunnan, when it plunged from cruising altitude to crash at mountains of Guangxi less than an hour before its scheduled landing time. On Tuesday, rescuers combed heavily forested mountain slopes in southern China using shovels and torches in their search for victims and flight recorders from the jet that crashed with 132 people on board. For more on this story and other breaking news, visit our website at voenews.com. Remember to connect with us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Search for VOA Africa. You are listening to VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedorfo in Washington. Escalating violence by unidentified armed groups in northern Mozambique's oil-rich Cabo Delgado province has sent tens of thousands of people fleeing for their lives since the start of the year. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. Nearly one year ago, on March 24th, a jihadist group launched major attacks in the Palma district of Cabo Delgado, causing massive displacement throughout the region. The UN Refugee Agency expressed alarm Tuesday at the resurgence of similar attacks by non-state armed groups, which have displaced around 30,000 people between January and mid-March. UNHCR spokesman Boris Cheshyakov says some 24,000 people displaced within Nangade district need urgent humanitarian aid and protection. He says another 5,000 people also have fled for safety to neighboring Mueda, a remote area bordering Tanzania. Those fleeing violence suffered and witnessed atrocities, including killings, the decapitation and dismemberment of bodies, sexual violence, kidnappings, forced recruitment by armed groups, and torture. The threat of renewed violence means the number of people arriving in Weta continues to increase. Cheshikov says hundreds of families reportedly still are on the move. He says the humanitarian needs of the thousands of recently displaced people are huge. They are in addition to the ongoing assistance required by more than 735,000 people who have fled their homes since the conflict in Cabo Delgado started in October 2017. He says the UNH partners are providing shelter materials and household items to vulnerable families. We are assessing the protection risks and supporting authorities to manage the sites which are hosting the displaced. Major gaps remain, however, especially in providing mental health and psychosocial support to unaccompanied and separated children, for instance, but also to people living with disabilities, pregnant women and older people. One of his biggest worries, he says, is the lack of resources. He notes the UNHCR has received only 11% of the $36.7 million required to deliver life-saving assistance to these hundreds of thousands of destitute people. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. New data from a sophisticated radio telescope in South Africa is helping scientists uncover the secrets of one of astronomy's newest mystery objects, faint rings of radio waves called odd radio circles, unquote. ORCs were first revealed by Australia's National Science Agency. From Sydney, Phil Mercer reports. In 2019, experts at Australia's Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organisation, or the CSIRO, discovered spooky glowing rings in the sky using a powerful radio telescope in Western Australia. 
They were unlike anything they'd seen before, and they were called odd radio circles, or ORCs. They are rare, faint rings of radio emissions that surround a galaxy, with a highly active black hole at its centre. Experts believe they're about a billion light-years away from Earth. Their origin continues to puzzle scientists, but fresh information has been provided by new detailed images, captured by the South African Radio Astronomy Observatory's Meerkat Radio Telescope. They've allowed researchers to peer deep inside the heart of the ORCs. There are now three main theories to explain what causes them. Scientists believe they could be the remnant of a huge explosion at the centre of their host galaxy, powerful jets of energetic particles spewing out of the galaxy's centre, or the result of a starburst termination shock from the production of stars in the galaxy. Professor Ray Norris is from Western Sydney University and is affiliated with the CSIRO. He is an authority on ORCs and says research into deep space has practical applications. The thing about basic science, you never know what's going to come out of it. Just like with these orcs, we don't know what's going to come out of it. But we're likely to uncover new physics. You know, when people first discovered radio waves, they really thought there's no practical application whatsoever and yet now we have wi-fi and tv and everything else but if you're looking towards the long-term advance of human knowledge human science human technology this is absolutely what you have to be doing is studying how the universe works finding out what else is out there that we don't know about the research is published in monthly notices of the royal astronomical society phil mercer for voa news sydney international edition on the voice of america on behalf of the entire production team thank you so much for listening visit our website for in-depth coverage of world events and news 24 hours a day at voanews.com until next time i am chinero from washington wishing you a great day Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. March 16th marked the 34th anniversary of one of the most heinous crimes against humanity on record. The murder by poison gas of Iraqi civilians by their own leader, Saddam Hussein. In 1988, Saddam Hussein initiated the Al-Anfal campaign and charged his cousin, Ali Hassan al-Majid, with executing it. Al-Anfal was a scorched earth policy designed to put down a rebellion in northern Iraq, the local response to a five-year crackdown on ethnic minorities. On the evening of March 16th, after a day of shelling that broke windows and doors across the Kurdish town of Halabja, Iraqi helicopters and planes began to pepper the city with canisters of chemical weapons. Heavier than air, the toxic chemicals sank to the ground and seeped into the damaged buildings, killing civilians sheltering in cellars. Around 3,500 to 5,000 people died that day in Halabja. It was the first time in modern history that a government attacked its own people with chemical weapons. 
In the course of one year, the Al Anfal campaign cost the lives of about 100,000 people, most of them civilians. Ali Hassan al-Majid, known from then on as Chemical Ali, went on to commit more atrocities, including a bloody suppression of a 1991 uprising of Shia Muslims. When the regime of Saddam Hussein toppled, Chemical Ali was captured, tried, and found guilty of committing genocide and crimes against humanity. For these crimes, Ali Hassan al-Majid was executed. The war crimes trials held after the Second World War resulted in closer scrutiny of the conduct of warring parties and their leaders, particularly their treatment of civilians. Since then, once fighting is over, those who committed war crimes or crimes against humanity are identified, hunted down, brought to trial before an international court, and sentenced to long prison terms. Such was the fate of war criminals from the dissolution of Yugoslavia, the Rwandan genocide, and the Cambodian genocide. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. This is the voice of America. Washington, bop, bop, bop.